Uh, We're going to be looking at Jonah today, the book of Jonah, towards the end of the Old Testament. And um, really we're going to be kind of looking at the whole whole of his life, not in detail, but just um, the the general events of his life. And on the one hand, uh, the book of Jonah is something we see in children's stories a lot. Um, It's great for illustrations and pictures. Um, But it's not a simple story, actually. Uh, In many ways, there's some quite complex themes, and it can be a little bit confusing to get to the bottom of what it's actually about. So we're going to look at him in in the broad sense of his life, and um, which is actually quite appropriate, because it's an unusual book, the book of Jonah, in that it's a prophetic story. So Jonah does prophesy in the book, but actually... It's the events of his life and the things that God takes him through um, which speak most loudly um, in terms of the message that God wants to portray uh, through his word in that. So, three points today. We're going to be looking at three changes uh, that took place in the life of Jonah, or three changes he experienced. So, firstly, there's a change in direction from going his own way towards God's way. There was changes in his actions and also, um, there was, he recognized a need for a change in his heart. So, the chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, starts like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Very simple thing here. Jonah is instructed to take God's word to Nineveh. His response is to run away from the Lord, to catch a boat in the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. And what we're seeing displayed in Jonah's life here. I think, is nothing but pure, willful disobedience. It makes you wonder what's going on in his heart. Was Jonah perhaps just some kind of Christian backslidden state of life, or was he sluggish, or perhaps he couldn't be bothered to do what God wanted to do, or or we might think, is he ignorant to what God has for him in his life? But I'd say, no, he, he can't be sluggish, because or apathetic, because if God tells me to do something, and I don't want to do it, I generally don't go to the effort of running miles in the other direction. I'll just do nothing. Um, He clearly wasn't ignorant because he's reporting that he heard God's word. He knew what God wanted for his life, but he's choosing to do something completely different. And I also don't think Jonah's problem was that he was unbelieving because we find out later um, in the story in chapter 4 and verse 2 Uh, When he says this, he says that Jonah prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Tarshish, I knew that you're a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. The reason Jonah was heading in the opposite direction to where God wanted him to go wasn't lack of belief, but actually the problem was that he knew God would do as he was going to say. He didn't like God's plan, and he didn't want it to succeed. 
Before we get into anything of any more depth in this story, it's important to, I think, receive a very simple but clear instruction. Let's go God's way. Let's go his way, and let's choose to accept that his way is the best. It's pretty simple, but it's actually very difficult to do, isn't it? Um, What happens when we don't choose God's way? The Bible says that ultimately, not choosing God's word leads to death. Sin is actually not accepting God's way of doing things, but choosing to go in our own direction, just like Jonah did, and follow our own path. And the Bible says that there's consequences for this. Um, It's in Romans that it says that the wages for sin is death. As we choose to live our own lives, we earn something, actually. Like when you you have a job, you're rightfully paid for the work that you do. But the Bible says that sin, the the wages that we earn for that, are actually uh, death. And this is something like the consequences that Jonah faced. So Jonah caught the boat to Tarshish, and what happens is a storm comes, a very severe storm that actually threatens the destruction of the boat. And Jonah knows, he's absolutely clear in his mind, that this is happening um, because of his disobedience. And um, it says in chapter 1, verse 11, it describes this here. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make, what should we do to you, the other sailors said, to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Skipping on to verse 17, it says that the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The physical consequences that Jonah experiences for his disobedience are very much like death. And we see this described in a prayer that he prays um, in the next chapter. And just one line for it. He says, in my distress I call to you, Lord. And he answered me. From the, and he describes it like this. From the deep, in the realm of the dead, I called for you. And some translations use the word shoal, which is an Old Testament word, apparently similar to Hades. And that is a word often used to describe for being cast out, a place of punishment, uh, a very unpleasant place to be um, for those who do not follow God. And there's a clear warning in this, an instruction, that if we've never made a conscious decision um, about the ultimate direction of your life, then the Bible says that we have a similar destination that is described in a similar way to Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish. Again, in his prayer, he says, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards the holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me to life up from the pit. Some of Jonah's language here describes what this, this, this kind of consequence is life. He says he's in a realm of death. He's engulfed, he's tied up, he's bound in prisons and in the depth of a pit. The destination of those who don't follow God is ultimately something like this. What is the destination of your life? Perhaps for you, maybe you've made a decision to follow God with your life generally, but you're, you're not following it at the moment. 
Um, or perhaps you may have loved ones who are not following that path and not going in God's direction as they once were. There's an encouragement for us in this message as well. Um, and that encouragement is God isn't threatened by people turning away. If the story was to stop here, it would be um, not an optimistic thing. It's a little bit like any film has this same pattern, doesn't it? About three quarters of the way through, the hero ends up in dire straits. This hero, he or she, will end up in some kind of a scenario that looks irreparable. Or, or maybe it's a rom-com and there's a, there's a couple getting together and it's a romantic story. There's always that bit, isn't there, before the final conclusion where it all falls apart. There's a misunderstanding and that relationship is unrepairable um, by any rational kind of um, thought other than we know the pattern of these films. And um, it's a bit like this if we were to stop here for Jonah. It's not good. But thankfully, the, fir- the story doesn't finish here. And there is hope for those people who we love who might be not going in the right direction because God is able to turn people around and he is sovereign over all things and we can believe for them that there is hope. There is hope in God. God can hear your prayer even in the depths, even in the belly of the fish. It's a bit like that verse in Psalms when it says, even if I make my bed in the depth, you are there. God is there in the depths. God is there in the belly of the fish. There's a few examples throughout the Bible that can encourage us in this, um, that, that are similar. We see David. David was a man of God, but David turned away from the Lord. He, he saw Bathsheba um, bathing, and he committed adultery, and he went on to commit murder, and he turned from God. But we get insight into his prayer when he's in rebellion from God in Psalm 51, when he says, have mercy on me. Oh God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And God heard David's prayer. God restored David. Similarly with Peter, Peter denied Jesus at the time of his trial, but yet he later restores him on the beach. And we see this pattern throughout the Old Testament all the time with the people of Israel turning away from God, turning to other idols, but then calling out to the Lord. And he responds and he rescues them. And God can answer our prayers too. In fact, God's plan for those who do not believe is already in place far before anyone even prays. You see, in Romans it talks about while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And actually, Jonah's prayer of repentance came in the fish. But God sent the fish before Jonah ever even prayed. He knew that God brought us a storm But when Jonah had sinned and Jonah turned away God, there was a means of saving grace for Jonah before he even had the thought of mind to repent and turn to God. And for anyone listening here today who's not following God, there's a wonderful story for you that is also true. That though you may not believe, God sent his son to die for you on the cross. So that punishment and guilt that would be rightfully ours was taken up upon him. And that has been done for those who choose to believe. And it's put very plainly, um, it's put very plainly in the Bible when it, says, um, when it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. Praise God. Sorry. 
pull myself together. Okay, change number two. Jonah went through another change. He changed his actions and chose to go God's way. Chapter 3, verse 1. Jonah, having been in the fish for three days, eventually God causes the fish to vomit Jonah up onto the beach, and that is when he's alive and he's rescued. And it says, after that point in in chapter 3, and verse 1, when the Lord came to Jonah a second time, and he said to him, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it a message I give you. And this time, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So we see Jonah now heading in the right direction again. And he now begins to act on the instructions that God has for him and his life. And on the way, he encounters a few things. One of the things Jonah encounters is that now he's working on a mission alongside the one who is in charge of the world. The one who is sovereign and has power over all created things. Now... The book of Jonah is a challenging one for many people these days because the mechanics of being saved by a fish are quite hard to believe if you don't have faith because it's a challenging thing. But if this is a challenge to you, then unfortunately this book has a lot more reasons for you to struggle. We see God's sovereignty interacting with the world in a lot of incredible ways. God commanded a fish to rescue Jonah. He was able to sustain him in it for three days. And then he was able to lead the fish to spit him out onto the beach. Later in the story, we find out that he causes a leafy plant to grow up in a single day. And then the next day, he sends a worm to destroy it. Following that, he's able to conjure up a hot east wind to give Jonah some grief and heat and pressure. God is in control of the natural elements. And the big one we see in this story is, of course, the storm. God sends the storm, such a fierce storm that it's threatening the destruction of the boat and everybody's life on it. There's a very obvious kind of parallel to me between there's a story about Jonah on the boat and a story about Jesus on a boat. And we can see something of God's sovereignty when we compare the two stories. So back to Jonah on the boat, chapter 1 and verse 4 of Jonah. This is how how the Bible describes it. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice um, so that we will not perish. If we jump now to Matthew in chapter 8, we see another storm. Jesus in the storm. Suddenly, a furious storm came upon the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? He got up, and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the waves obey him. There's a stark contrast between the two. Jonah awoke in the storm, in the boat, to find out that he was completely at the mercy of the waves. He, in his own strength, could do nothing about it. However, Jesus wakes in the storm. Well, Jesus was controlling the storm while he was still asleep. And really, he wakes up to rebuke the disciples. And then he chooses to calm the storm. Jesus was in control 
of the situation. Jesus was sovereign. He was in control whilst he was asleep. And he was aware of the, the disciples' faith as much as he was aware of the situation that they were in. And it does make you consider, looking at God's sovereign power in this world, who has the most wisdom for our life? Whose instructions are we best to follow when we compare the man, Jonah, and God, Jesus, in these situations? Another thing Jonah encountered was that as he, as he obeyed God's decisions, was that he'd been given a life-changing message to deliver. Jonah, now being obedient to God, he heads to Nineveh. Chapter 3, verse 3. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes and covered himself in sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And jumping to verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. This, this is incredible. Jonah walked around the city speaking God's message against it and the people believed. It said that the Ninevites believed. The city appears here to have responded to God's message from God. Jonah's obedient actions resulted in an entire generation, an entire city being saved for eternity. And we know it's for eternity because later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus is making a separate point about the fact that um, the Pharisees are not listening to God. And he says that the men of Nineveh will stand up at the time of judgment and, and almost you'll be judged by their actions because the men of Nineveh repented but you Pharisees are not. So Jesus refers to them being able to stand up before God at the day of judgment. He confirms their salvation. It's incredible the impact of bringing God's message to these people and what it has. Another thing he encountered along the way was that God took him to places that he would never have imagined he would have ever gone. You see, Nineveh wasn't inside Israel. They weren't Jews. It was actually um, an Assyrian city, an important Syrian city. So they weren't under that original promise. They weren't, they weren't the, 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 the people that, they, that Moses and, uh, had gone out to claim the land. This was outside of that. And, and this challenges Jonah's understanding. And what he began to discover, that actually God's saving message is a message for all the world. And that's challenging, isn't it? I think it's very difficult in the busyness of life to think about the rest of the world. And more so since having children, that life can just claim our attention throughout all the day, every day. And for many different reasons, it can for different ones of us. But Jesus has clearly commissioned us to something broader than just our own circle of experience Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, we hear the great commission from Jesus where he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Jonah was being taken out of his country, about the people, the Jews, the people who had God's word. And this commission is urging us to go to the world. I don't know if you've ever heard of a chap called Rick Warren who leads a very big church over in America and he was famous for writing a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And I just love his simple... Um, direct obedience to this message in that he, he, it's a big church, it's a very big church, and they themselves set themselves a 10-year target to send people to every nation in the world, 197 of them. They sent 25,000 people out over 10 years to literally do themselves what that commission says there. And okay, you know, some of it was just a flying visit, but it's impressive, isn't it? And I just love the fact that they're just doing what Take, reading the Bible plainly and responding to it plainly um, inspires me. But it is hard in the business of life, isn't it, to develop a passion for people in other countries. And I think one of the things that we can do is be helped by those amongst us who do have a connection with other nations or God has spoken to them very specifically about it and they can help us and we can join in with what they're doing and they can take us into different things like Blesson is great at drawing us into um, engaging with other believers in other parts of the world. But we can get behind people. We can get behind people um, like Gail and like others um, who we know who don't live here. Um, so, so far, Jonah, he's changed his direction, and now he's following the actions that God has given him, causing him to encounter a sovereign God with a life-changing message to share in places he never imagined. It's actually quite exciting. Third change in Jonah's life, God challenges him to have a change of heart. And to understand it, we do need to ask this question that I've just been alluding to. Why does Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? God's not fitting in Jonah's box. And our thinking needs to be conformed to God's way. We don't, we're not, the way we approach the Bible and approach our relationship with God, obviously, is to not try and make his actions satisfy our logic. And um, God set, chose to save Nineveh and not bring destruction on it. And Jonah's response to this in chapter 4 and verse 1 says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. So Jonah's preached to the Ninevites. They've repented, and God saved them. And this is an unusual story in chapter 4 of Jonah, where he has an encounter with a plant, and he's upset that God has um, saved them. And he basically goes for a, a sulk, really, and he's just watching to see if God's going to save them or not. And during this time, God causes a plant, leafy plant to grow up over his head and shade him from the heat of the sun. And then the next day, God sends a worm to destroy the plant, and Jonah loses his shelter, and he's very upset about this, and it's hot and scorching wind comes, and he's complaining to God um, about what happened. In the, he saved these Assyrian, this Assyrian city, and his attitude is that they are them and they're not us. I don't have compassion for these people. 
God is now extending his compassion to these non-Israelites. I thought we were the special ones. I thought the Jews were the special ones. Why are you doing this? And God comes in and he challenges Jonah's attitude very strongly in chapter 4 and verse 10. He says, you have been concerned about this plant, the plant that died, though you did not tend it and you did not make it grow. And then verse 11, he says, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals? Jonah knew nothing about the plant. He didn't carefully tend to it. He didn't nurture it. And yet God knew every single one of those people in that city. He knew every one, 120,000 by name. He knew them from birth through childhood to adulthood. He knows about every tear. He knows about every laugh. God knows each person individually. And yes, his message of judgment was genuine. If the people hadn't have turned, yes, God would have judged him. But let's not let that fool us into th- or confuse us that God doesn't have a deep concern and a deep compassion for those people. We see this throughout the life of Jesus, God's compassion for people. Just to mention them, um, when, when Lazarus died, Mary's brother, we, we, we hear that Jesus had compassion on, on his sister Mary and, and that he saved him because, and he wept in his language like he was deeply moved. And, and, and the, deci- the people around him remarked and said, see how he loved him. And he responded to that situation. He went to the tomb where Lazarus lay and he brought him back to life. Jesus, when he was traveling, um, he, he, in Mark it talks about he lands in the boat and, he, and the words are that he had compassion on the people because they were like sheep led astray. A bit like how we hear the Ninevites described as they didn't know their left hand from the right hand. Jesus encountered people and they didn't know the truth. They were like sheep led astray. And he brought his truth to them out of compassion. And he later feeds the 5,000. It's the same, the same crowd. And I don't know about you, but when I just consider these stories about Jesus, it impacts my heart to see how he interacted with other people and how he had a heart for him. But how much more are we impacted when we realize that um, Jesus had passion um, for us? Um, there was an interesting thing that happened when um, in... in um, in this church, and um, I was coming to, to the meeting one Sunday morning, and uh, Chris was with a young lad, and he was in tears. He, um, and I didn't know the situation, but Chris says, come on, I said, come over here and speak to this chap. So we got to know him, we got talking to him, he was in a real mess, and it turns out that the night before he'd slept rough in the park, um, he hadn't eaten, he was cold, he was in dis- absolute despair, and we spent some time getting to know him and what happened. And it turns out that he'd failed a year at university. And he was so ashamed about it that, in fact, he went into his second year. He went back to university. Um, and he just lived off the, the remainder of his student loan. And he lived off, his, lived off his overdraft. And he'd been home in between term times, and he'd not told his parents, and he'd kept up the pretense that everything was fine, to the point where his money ran out, the, 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 the letters of debt had kept coming through the door, until one day he just 
left his house, left all of his possessions behind and just ran away to the point where now he was sleeping in the park, he was living rough, he was in absolute despair and the saddest thing was he felt he couldn't turn to anyone, he couldn't turn to his parents because he was just trapped in guilt and shame. He'd squandered all of his money and actually it was almost hilarious how similar his life had paralleled the story of the prodigal son in going away and wasting his money on wild living and feel too ashamed to return to his father. And by God's grace, we were able to pray with him, we were able to encourage him, we were able to feed him. And after some persuasion, we were able to get his parents on the phone and able to reunite them with him and they, they traveled down and um, he later, I found out, subscribed to an apprenticeship and, 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 and his life was turned around. And it was a fantastic opportunity um, to show compassion to somebody. But for me, ultimately, this was just somebody who was in front of me. He was in this building. And there's two kinds of compassion that we can almost see contrasted in this story. And where the real compassion, or, or where I think the parallel is in that story for me compared to Jonah is, what happened the day before? And two women from our church had gone out to the park and just prayed to decide what is God speaking? Who out there does God want to speak to? And this is where I see an amazing comparison. Because here Jonah's being told to go outside of those, the Israelites, outside of the Jews, who he would know, and he would know their plight, and he would know their need. And God was aware of those who are outside of his circles, whose need he wouldn't normally interact with. And the two ladies from our church, I'm encouraged by their faith because they stepped outside of their circle, outside the demands of their life, outside their own people, to say, who beyond there does God want need to show life to? Who beyond there is God instructing me um, to bring his message to of life and forgiveness? And that, for me, is a serious encouragement. Jonah, he had a blind spot. He had compassion on God's people. And I think there's often two narratives in the Christian life. We have the journey that God takes us on about out there and what he's going to do with our lives. But also there's a journey about what he's doing in here to transform us into his likeness. And these things can be a little bit out of step. Sometimes we can, we can live for God, but actually our heart's not there. Jonah saw an entire city turn to God despite not having any compassion on them whatsoever. I mean, that is a serious contrast between actions and attitude. Um, yet, he still believed that God was good. Jonah had the right thinking about God, but the wrong thinking about people. Jonah himself describes God as being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, who relents from sending calamity. And we see that mentioned in the Psalms, the same words. But he failed to recognize that God has compassion on all he has made, and not just those people. How are you doing in your external journey and your internal journey? Some of us perhaps need to fret less about how we're doing and just get going and do some things for God. But maybe some of you, um, we can recognize in ourselves that we're serving, but we also need to examine our heart. To examine that in the midst of obedient actions for God and having an obedient belief about God, that we've not lost sight that he has a heart for all kinds of people. Jonah had a ministry call, but yet a narrow compassion. And the simple truth is that often 
our compassion doesn't extend to the peoples that God does, or to the same, same degree. And this is the enduring message that I believe Jonah wants to leave with us. And this was the light bulb moment for me, is when I realized, actually, this, this story about Jonah is not very flattering. It doesn't look like my Instagram feed, in that we see his rebellion, we see him going in the wrong way, we see him actually sulking and looking quite immature at one point. But yet Jonah wrote the book. Jonah wrote the book. It is commonly believed. But even if you dispute that, he must have at least had to share his story because nobody else know, would have known about his prayer in the fish. Nobody else would have known. So Jonah, he either wrote the book or at very least, he broadcast his story widely, warts and all, the butt of the joke. And I think this is what really stays with me looking at this story is that he made his mistakes and his disobedience known. He made his lack of compassion known. And it's purposeful. As we come into a close, um, or close to a close, the, there's a hanging question that's left in the air in that story. When, jo- G- when God contrasts his attitude towards the Ninevites compared to Jonah's. And he uses this phrase, should I not have concern? Should I not have concern for those outside of our circle? Should we not have concern for people in other nations? Should we not have concerns for those in a different social group to us? Concern for anyone who is not described as whatever us is. And we need to develop a compassion in areas where we don't naturally have it. I know I do. Hannah and I are very different. Hannah is a naturally compassionate person. If someone comes for me, to me for money or, or in need, I've got quite a series of um, internal questions that I go through, I think. Um, should I really help this person? If I give this person money, am I actually in some way going to cause a problem because they're going to use this money foolishly? Or am I kind of feeding some underlying issue that actually, by responding to their immediate need, is going to make it worse? Or is this person, am I being manipulated? I need to weigh this up. Um, actually, maybe there are some professionals who are much better suited to responding to this, pers- this situation than I am. Um, and also, I've got an immediate responsibility to find my family. If I help this person, then it's actually going to pull me away from my family at this time. And there's some legitimacy in this, but Hannah, someone comes to her and says, there's a person in need, what do you need? Here it is, who's next? She doesn't go through that process, she's just got a naturally compassionate heart. But for those in the room who can relate to my response, we do need help. And I believe looking at God's compassion towards us helps us to do this. So, um, as I began to mention other, there's some great examples from Jesus. He meets the widow and he has compassion on her um, in Luke 7 when she sees that her only son, she's a widow with, without any, you know, a widow in that time did not have somebody to bring money and means of protection. So she's going to die. Her only son is about to die. Jesus stops and he cries out to her and he heals her son. Um, like I mentioned before, um, Jesus had compassion on the crowd who didn't know um, anything about God. And also, we see it um, with Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus wept. The people saw 
how he loved you, and it moves our heart. But I think what moves our heart the most is when we recognize about God's compassion on us individually. Uh, For me, that is when Jonah's life began to turn. When he calls out in his prayer from the fish in chapter 2 and verse 1, he's saying, I'm inside the fish. Jonah prayed to the Lord, and he said, in my distress I call to you, Lord. And he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Or as Psalm 139 puts it, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Even if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Jonah was in the depths, and God was there. And Jonah's prayer of help was turned to a prayer of praise. When he shouts, I will shout with shouts of grateful praise, I will sacrifice to you. We can see God's compassion for others, but when we truly experience God's compassion for ourselves, that's when our heart changed. We can't escape from God's love. We are fully known by God. We are fully accepted by God. We are absolutely loved by God. And recognizing this helps us to develop a heart for others. Jonah, on reflecting on his journey, in telling the story, And the grace shown to him must have come to recognize this, that God wanted him to have compassion for others. And we're left with that same question hanging in the last couple of verses when Jesus says, should we not have concern? He says this. He says, um, bear with me. He talks about, should I not have concern for these people who don't know their left hand from their right? And I just want to leave us with that same question to finish. Do we need to have that turning point today? Do we need to know for ourselves in a fresh way that God's shown compassion to us so that we can have compassion for others and even for those who are outside of our circle and outside of our view? Let's ask God to help us to extend compassion to others and just as he extended grace to Jonah and just how he's extended grace to us through Jesus Christ, his own son. Amen. Amen. I'll pray.